This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's radio, business radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change, and I'm here with uh, my good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program, also at the Wharton School. Uh, our third host, Jeff Klein, is off this week. I think he's camping in the woods somewhere. But uh, he will be back, and I just want to remind everybody that for new episodes of our show, every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern, we are right here, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, and don't forget to follow us, of course, on Twitter at SXM Business. There we are, and uh, Mike Barrier, I want to welcome you to the show. Great to have you on, and I'm going to say a few words about you. So, Mike, uh, you and I have known each other for a long time, going back to your days at Citi. So you had a, a significant stint at um, Citibank. You worked for Alcoa. You were the uh, chief HR person at Walmart. Last time I checked, I think they have at least two and a half million people to uh, for you to worry about as head of HR for Walmart. And four years ago, you joined McKinsey as a partner with a central focus on HR, human resources, talent, and strategy. So, Mike, really great to have you here to talk about all of the above. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Let me get uh, with uh, get us going with a bit of a more personal question. Uh, my guess is when you were in high school, you did not imagine one day you would be at a place like Walmart thinking about talent uh, or at McKinsey now. Uh, the same topic, area, talent and strategy. So what got you into the business? Yeah, great question, Mike. I guess coming out of high school, I was everything about becoming an engineer. I, I had an uncle that was an industrial engineer. He was a mentor. Um, and I just loved to learn about how things work, especially uh, complex systems. So I was ecstatic to you know, do an engineering program um, I did it at Hofstra University. I was so excited about engineering. I, I didn't even specialize. I took an engineering science degree, so I was exposed to electrical, mechanical, aerospace engineering. And coming out of school, like my first job was with Grumman Aerospace, and I couldn't have been more excited about, you know, my career is now solved for it. I'm on my way. Um, let me just fast forward, you know, maybe about a year into the role, I realized how painful work can be from a context of um, motivation and, and meeting people that really weren't happy in their jobs and leaders that weren't bringing the best out of talent. And it was, it was heavy on my mind. I'm in my mid-20s really thinking about what do I want to do with my career? This isn't what I expected. Um, and I feel very fortunate because a, a, a couple of sequence of events gave me some time to reflect and in that reflection period, I discovered the field of industrial organizational psychology. And I stumbled into it reading a Business Week magazine about work and motivation. And it really clicked for me. It was like, this is what's missing. You know, yeah. who wrote this article? And I looked down and it was two authors. And I'll never forget, they, they both had PhD industrial organizational psychology after their names. And that, that was it. I was like, this is the field I need to learn. And, and my 
mantra kind of that, that evolved during this period was I wanted to have a positive impact on people at work. Yeah. So I, I stayed as an engineer, but I went to grad school at night, um, you know, really studying this whole new field. Um, but I still had no idea I would end up in not only in HR, but some of the companies you mentioned, like Citigroup, Alcoa, Walmart, and McKinsey. Um, I was just following my passion. You know, how, how do I learn about having an impact on people at work? Um, I, you know, if I go a little further, coming out of Grumman and now having this, this kind of uh, doctorate in IO psychology brought me to the nuclear industry. And in the early 90s, they were my formative years because we were studying what are the antecedents to human error in, in a complex environment like a nuclear power plant where, where it could be catastrophic. So early in my career, I started to get into the, the research and analytics side of, of human behavior. Um, those are great years, but fast forward, and you, you mentioned Citigroup, the way I got to City was I, I was actually a professor and doing research and I had a small little consulting practice and City was a client to City Private Bank. And coming out of my nuclear research, I said, well, how would you apply that to private bankers? You know, what, what differentiates the best private bankers from average? And Mike, that's about the time I met you, right? The, um, yeah. the whole notion of, you know, what are those attributes that really differentiate? And they needed to be attributes that were actionable. So how can we translate, you know, those findings and help others, you know, kind of reach that more optimal level of performance? So that's kind of been a theme throughout my career. You know, what, what, what roles are really important? How does the best talent succeed in those roles? And then how do you then help the broader population to move more towards that, that level of performance, if yeah. you will? Mike, that's great. I love the metaphor that you in effect use you had your light bulb moment yeah. so you were on a path uh, engineering was the way to go and uh, then there was one day when you appreciated that there was something else that also drew your intellectual and now uh, professional interest and to play with words a little bit you went from nuclear reactors to the human reaction exactly and, uh, i've got one follow-up question on that then i'm going to hand the baton on to my friend and colleague here Ann greenhall uh, and this gets to the heart of what you've been doing now for many years on the human resource, talent, and strategy side. And that is people unequivocally make a difference. Whatever the equation is, how it's executed, how it's carried out is another factor which you can't take for granted. We're not automatons. Sometimes our personal concerns get in the way of great behavior. A question that often comes up, though, is this. How much difference do people really make on top of what, say, a company strategy suggests they ought to take as actions? Um, maybe to make that more specific, if we get the people equation right, are we talking about a 2% improvement, a 20% improvement? So how much difference does that human element make on top of the engineering element? Mike, over yeah. to you. I, Mike, in some roles, it's it's 10x. You know, when you really think about the, you know, let's say um, in, in the commercial side, you know, the best, and I could give an example of private bankers, which I will in a minute, but, but it does vary by role in terms of the differentiation opportunity. So literally, and if you look at some of the research that, you know, that came out of Google, for example, there could be coders that are 10x as, as productive in terms of their performance level. In many roles, it's it could be four or five x, and that's what I found with the bankers. So, so to be more concrete, the work that I mentioned, you know, with private bankers and looking at what were the factors that differentiated the best. Once we were able to articulate 
development interventions to shift the performance curve over a three-year period, the best bankers were performing 4X of, of the lowest performers and removed the whole population. You know, it's basically one standard deviation, um, but it basically doubled the, the revenue of the private bank in that period of time. So, so significant impact if you can align what are the success requirements in the role and how do you help the talent you know, really fit those requirements best, either through development, placement, or and sometimes you, you know, it's external recruiting. Um, so, so I think it's a huge impact and I think more and more companies are realizing that talent has been under leveraged and in today's disruption, you know, it's just, it's gotta be table stakes. Um, yep, my, my quick words on it and then over to Anne. Same strategy, same approach, same purpose, same metrics on ultimate performance. But if you get that human equation right, you can double the performance or sometimes even more uh, than 2x. So, all right, with that, Anne, let me throw it over to you. Well, Mike, a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you so much. And I would be remiss if I missed the opportunity to say that Jeff Klein, our co-host also gives his regards. Yeah. He says he recalls meeting you when you were Al at Alcoa. So right. Jeff wanted me to be sure to say, say hello. Mike's question about how much difference uh, do people make uh, brings up measurement. And you said a little bit earlier that when you moved uh, to the nuclear industry, you were especially interested in how much difference human error can make. Can you just talk a little bit about how you go about measuring the difference that people make? Yeah, and the, the, the first piece that comes to mind in the nuclear industry, um, when I started this work, there was a plug for human error, and it was a human will fail one in every 10,000 tries, literally. And that, in a probabilistic risk assessment tree, that, that's what they plugged in for the human action. The, the way we approached the work was, recognizing that there's certain conditions that almost conspire to guarantee a person's fail. And we call it the performance shaping factors and the error forcing context. Um, and in the performance shaping factors are all those things, you know, you'd be familiar with, um, you know, training, communication, mm -hmm. procedures, um, the culture, you know, safety culture. And mm -hmm. if th those things could be deficient and you yeah. still have good performance, but in certain conditions, you know, they conspire to almost guarantee a person's going to fail. So we went under the premise of let's investigate how often you have this combination of performance shaping factors and the error forcing context that are going to guarantee a person's going to fail. And let's try to predict those situations rather than in how many tries. Mm. And let's face it, the human's not pushing, you know, dialing a switch or pushing a button in the failure. It's, it's the cognitive interpretation of what's happening and you know, understanding the actions that need to be taken as well, which is a, a you know, a whole sequencing of activities. So, so it's, it's more complex than just looking at, you know, a, a rate of failure, if you will, or, or, or a performance outcome. Um, if I fast forward it to the kind of work I do today, um, this is where I really think it's important to understand what is success in a role before you think about the talent and performance level. So, so the work I do is called linking talent to value. And if you understand the value that's expected of a role to create, and you do that work up front, so you're allocating you know, your overall business strategy to value drivers and then to the, the most critical roles, now you have a value allocation to a role, 
And then if you look at the talent in that role, how close do they come to the best fit of those requirements? And we literally find that if, if, if it's a poor fit, you probably have about 60, 70% of that value at risk because you don't have the best talent in the role. But when you get it right, you know, you're, you're more towards the 90% level of, of probability of success in delivering that value. So that's kind of a way that I, I define the outcomes now. It's much more in the, the value outcome terms, um, if you will. Hey, Mike, I've got to break in for just a minute here to remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Usame. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and we are talking with Mike Barrier, a partner in McKinsey & Company's organizational practice. So, Ann, why don't you keep us going for a few more minutes? Thank you, Mike. Just to follow up, uh, Mike Barrier, when you talk about talent to value, and can you just give us a working definition of what you mean by talent? Yeah. So, it's funny you say that. I'm laughing because... One thing I advocate is roles before talent. So um, at the end of the day, you're trying to link your talent to the value drivers that are most important to realize your aspiration as a company, as an enterprise. Um, so linking talent to value is a process that you go through to understand the aspiration. How does that break out into key value drivers? And some of them might be about growth. Some might be around automation, innovation. Some might be more about cost. There could be an inorganic value driver, but recognizing how that value gets allocated in across the business to critical roles within key functions and business units. What is success in those roles? So defining success in terms of the value drivers that, that the role has to have an impact and then assessing your talent against those requirements. So who are the, who's the incumbent? Who are some folks on the succession pipeline and understanding, you know, how well does that talent fit? given the requirements for that role and how that role needs to drive value. So coming out of that, the, the end product is you've linked talent to, to value drivers, but you've done it in a pretty rigorous way to understand the, the role requirements first, and then what is the best talent to fit into that. And, and I'm, I was smiling because often we, we flip it and we think we got a great talent. How do we just build around them? And people usually get, you know, triple hatted because they're great talent, but we're not recognizing what is the most essential value that, that this person can be driving when they're in the right role. Okay. Yeah, I really, really appreciate your making that point. And if I could just ask uh, just one more uh, question about definitions. Often we hear about people hiring for potential and yeah. then they talk about potential versus performance. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so potential is really important, but I always put the add-on potential for what? Yeah. So if it's potential for leadership, right? Now you want to look for what are the markers earlier in somebody's career that could give you confidence that they can accelerate and be a, let's say, a next-gen leader or even a next-gen CEO. So what's happening now in the field of HR human capital is we're able to really tie much more rigor around analytics and performance outcomes and understand those markers better than ever. So, so there's more objectivity going into, you know, what is somebody's potential? Now there's also potential for a technical track, you know, in terms of, you know, it, when I was at Walmart, it was who has the potential to be the best um, merchandisers. Yeah. Right? So it's not necessarily leadership. It's much more technical or who's the potential, particularly in digital and analytics is, is, a, is really important these days. Um, 
And then performance is, you know, how well do they perform in their current role? So potential is more forward-looking. Do they have the potential to do more? And, and what does that more, you know, look like? And then performance is more today. You know, how, how are they performing against the criteria? Um, Very good. Thank you. Mike, back to you. Mike, I'm feeling better about myself right now because I'm thinking <laughs> if I'm not doing a good job, it may not be completely my fault. I might just be <laughs> in the wrong position. Yeah, and, exactly. and thus, you as the chief human resource officer, that's part of your calling is to get the right people into a position where we can bring out the best in them. So that was, that's my preface. And here's my uh, more tangible question. Uh, I talked with the senior HR person at City actually before you were there uh, some time back, and she described her job as follows. This is uh, when it, I think it was still called Citibank at the time. And she said her job is to get the top 300 people in the top 300 positions where the match is really, really good. That's number one. But then she said uh, organizations are, all, are always promoting people, moving people up, more responsibility. And she said she found through hard experience that in moving a position, moving a person to a higher ranking position, uh, it had to be a stretch. That's it's kind of the nature of the business. But if it was too much of a stretch, uh, it was setting the person up to fail. It's not their fault. It's the organization's fault. The formula she used was 70-30. The higher position should draw upon what somebody already knows, that 70%, but should be about a 30% stretch. They've got to learn new things to perform well. So that's a long preface to the question. Does that sound about right or is 70-30 off in your own experience? What do you think? I like it, Mike. I haven't thought about it that way. But here's, here's the work I do, which I think would come back to the 70-30. I like to think of the critical role. So even if there was 300, is there a 50 within that 300 or they're absolutely essential? Like you just can't afford not to have the right talent. And if you start there, you take each one of those roles and what, and I call it jobs to be done. So in that role, what are the jobs to be done that are gonna drive value you know, and align to the enterprise value aspiration? That's only half of what I call the, the role card, right? So what does success in the role look like? What, what are the jobs to be done? The other half of the role card is, what are the experiences therefore that matter in order to have confidence that somebody can do those jobs to be done? What are the attributes, the markers? You know, Are they great at change management? Do they drive innovation? Are they awesome at collaboration and bringing more of an ecosystem to bear on, on problem solving? So there's certain attributes that are going to be really essential as well as experiences. And then it could be some baseline knowledge and skills. When we do the assessment, so when we take a critical role and assess the talent against that criteria, we usually have a cutoff. It's, it's around 70 or 80. It depends on the, the spread you know, and the population. But it typically does come out to that kind of 70 and above is, is a good fit. You have confidence that this person has enough of what's required to be successful. Below 70 and maybe above 50, I'm giving you rough guidelines, is they probably have some gaps that are significant but addressable. And I say that because you can, through development, like really focused development to get them better prepared for those few things that, that are deficient, or build the team around them to, to compensate you know, for some of their own deficiencies. Um, but if it's below 50, you, you, you don't have the right talent. You have to do something different, either internal succession or an external recruitment. 
And that's, you know, over in the past four years, over 50 engagements, it typically comes out to about 50% of the roles have that 70% or above fit. Um, another maybe 30% are, um, you know, kind of in that development addressable gaps, but we can develop. And then finally the, you know, 15, 20% is where you really have to make change. But I like that, that thinking. So Mike, I'm going to stay on this for a minute more and then going to give um, Anne a chance to get back in here before our station break. As you move people up, and that, that's just the nature of the business, uh, we're always um, moving out or we're moving up over time. Um, as you look at somebody who has not performed, let's, let's take private banking at City as a case in point, who has not performed at a higher level before, by definition, they have moved into maybe responsibility for a whole bunch of private bankers to get their job done. Uh, in your own experience, what's been the most important thing, maybe taking private banking as a case in point, as a person moves into a position of significant greater responsibility, that in your own experience, they really have to master pretty quickly? What, what do they need most that they don't have before they got there? Yeah, Mike, it's a great question. And I'll start with the mindset. And a, a lot of um, individual contributors or early, early career leaders got to those roles and got to that recognition because of what they did. It was based on, you know, their performance that met the expectations of others, if you will. And so success is driven by what they do. And, you know, and, and that's kind of like their marching orders. You know, I'm successful because of what, what I do. To me, the biggest shift in these more, you know, as you progress in these broader leadership roles is success is no longer what you do. It's what you get behind and help others to do. So the first thing is this shift in mindset um, that it's no longer about what I can create. It's more about how do I help others succeed? And, and along with that shift, and I call it a reactive shift to a creative mindset shift, um, comes with it a recognition that the role is different and even more different today than it might have been in more traditional leadership roles. So today, I think not only is the mindset shift important, but it's also that you figure out how do you manage your time and energy to be much more focused on the visioning and strategic part of, of what's important for the business, the architect of a system so you don't have to be in the trenches every day with in all the details and minutiae. You know, you can almost design the, the infrastructure for that. And then your role becomes that of what we call a coach catalyst. So now you're coaching, you're developing folks, you're actually, you know, inspiring. It's so important today to help the workforce connect to purpose and you know, values. Um, so that's where you have to shift where you actually focus your time. But it requires this mindset that, you know, it's not just about me and, you know, what, what I can create. I'm just wondering how we guard against implicit bias in the hiring process. We can think that we're looking for talent and that we are uh, taking an objective stance, but in fact, we can often realize that we're not. So I realize that's a big question. We may want to come back to that, but let me just tee it up here. Great, and I love the question and very relevant to today's time. So there is no silver bullet. There's no measurement analytics that are gonna say that's the answer. Um, and on the other hand, the more data, the more you could push up against some of those biases. And I'll explain um, how I've come up against that um, as well. And, and let me close this segment by referencing uh, a project that uh, you and I did, Mike, a while back 
looking at leadership among private bankers. And what was striking from that research we did together was, well, we suppose, I think we had 38, 39 different kind of predictors of great uh, leadership. Uh, it turned out less than a dozen of those turned out to be really, really vital. And I think it included, as I recall, and maybe you can just add to this before we do take our break, an ability to work close in with a private banker now as a leader of private bankers in ways where you could um, affect their macro and their micro thinking. So Mike, do you wanna add a bit to that before we do take our break here? Yeah, Mike, so the top behavior in that sales leadership uh, work that we did was the best sales leaders you know, were rated the highest on coaching and developing their bankers. Yep. And when you got under the hood, what were they actually doing in that? You're exactly right. It was almost thinking more on a macro level, like what's my game plan? What is my area of specialty and my client base? And then micro, you know, how do I really strengthen those relationships and become a trusted advisor? And the sales leaders who grew up in that, you know, were, were great at doing it, but it just wasn't on the radar and it really wasn't a, an accountability for it until we started to really put those pieces together. As you appreciate what people need, as they say, become now a leader of private bankers. So they had been a private banker. It's very technical. Um, it's very one-on-one -on -one as they work with their clients, but now they're working with a bunch of private bankers uh, to help them get their job done. And as somebody comes into that more senior role and they don't have the full repertoire of skills needed, how in your own experience have you found it is best to develop their talent when they don't have the full leadership repertoire, they're gonna need it quickly, how do they get it and how do you help them do that? Yeah, another good question, Mike. Uh, you know, two things come to mind coming out of the experience we had at the private bank. So when we did the work with sales leaders, we had already done the banker work. So we already had a pretty clear view of what were those attributes that differentiated the best bankers. And you know, thinking back to those days when, when I discovered that the, the, the strongest relationship between sales leader performance at, you know, and outcomes um, was coach and develop your bankers. When they asked me, well, what do I do? I, you know, well, here it is, this is the blueprint. You know, this is what we find. These are the you know, 10 of the most important attributes. So you need to help your bankers um, really become experts in the, in the areas that their clients generate wealth. So bankers started to differentiate more if they, if they had more of a stronger private equity clientele or a real estate clientele or a corporate executive clientele and go deeper in terms of what are the things that happen in those different um, specialty areas that you can help you know, be more of that broader advisor for clients. They help bankers really leverage the internal city group. And we used to call the private bank the Hermes Boutique and the Home Depot Warehouse of Financial Services. Uh, but the best leaders help create that connectivity and help bankers get others, other product managers and support folks, excited about their client and what the opportunity was. Now, how did the sales leaders start to develop that? Um, it was kind of a, a, a combination of my role in talent management, you know, to really help them plug into pieces. And in some cases it was direct coaching. In other cases, it was other type of sales leader training. Um, there was a really strong peer to peer network. Um, we had an operating cadence that we got together. There were 43 of the sales leaders around the world. And this was in the times when, you know, we did a lot more travel in the past few months, but 
you know, monthly, we, we got together and, and shared success stories. So it's kind of creating that, that fabric, if you will, around those. And given how critical that sales leader role was, that um, they're learning from each other, they're learning from what we're finding from the bankers that they lead, they're learning from how to broaden their, their exposure and ability to tap into the ecosystem that was the, the full city group, if you will. Great, super. Mike, let me just add my understanding of private banking, add to it before we go over to Ann here. Um, it's a, uh, uh, an esteemed role, and as a private banker, you're typically working with an individual and, or sometimes often a family to help them with their own wealth. Where should it be invested? How should it be managed? As I recall, to make it a little bit on the colorful side as well, uh, at one point, I think City had a couple full-time art curators uh, who could work with one of your private banking clients that wanted to buy a very costly painting, say, at Sotheby's, and uh, you provided that service too. So Mike, before we go over to Anne, do you want to add a little bit to my brief, um, almost definition of, of private banking there? Yeah, so two things, Mike. One is the, just how important it, it is for the banker to be that trusted advisor. You almost want to be the first call. We used to call it, you know, you want to be the client's CFO, if you will. So anything financial, and there's a lot, like you're, you're describing, you know, a family office or a about the individual is things about their own estate planning and setting up trust. And so it's not just about managing money. You know, there's a lot of other decisions. And that's the second point and about the art curators, you know, city had had those kind of folks and they had, you know, trust advisors and estate planners. And that's what I mean by the bankers that were able to tap that broader ecosystem based on what that client needed, you know, what were more successful. All right, that's great. And over to you. Very good. Thank you, Mike. Um, Mike Barrier, maybe a follow-up question for you along this line of thinking. Uh, we've been talking about how to develop talent, and earlier in the, in the first half, you talked about looking for 30% um, stretch experience, 70% uh, solid um, past experience, good markers, good grounding. When you, when you think about coaching, stretch experiences, and what Mike and Jeff and I call being a good student of leadership, how do you think about the proportions? 30% stretch experience, how much coaching, how much uh, just study? And if I understand the question, let me try to paraphrase. If I think about the leadership development side of the equation. Exactly. Yeah, so I, and, and this is pretty common. We call it the three E's, right? So experience is the biggest driver of development, and that might be 60 70%. Exposure is another important one, let's say 20 to 30. I'll come back to each one. And then finally, the education part is, could be thought of as about 10%. It doesn't mean it's, it's not important. It just means that in the relative scheme of the way that you can develop the education piece, you know, is more narrow, but the most important piece is the experience. What I find often lacking is that we, we tell folks, you need to rotate jobs, you need to do an international assignment, or you should, you should lead a turnaround, or go lead this kind of startup. And those are pretty common you know, development terms. But we're not deliberate about, like, what should you demonstrate before you move on from that, that experience, or before you show you're ready and you've actually learned and gained from, from the experience. Hmm. And I'll give an example from Walmart, 
um, if you were a merchant and you didn't rotate like within 18 months, you were kind of questioning, wow, am I, am I, am I high potential? Am I top talent? Um, because that became kind of the norm that you would quickly go through these different jobs, categories, and, and, and geographies. But what we found was that was just too, too fast. And you didn't really experience cycles within the role. Um, so one thing is we thought, what, what is the right time frame, and what are some business cycles that you can experience and actually see the impact of the changes that you make early? Um, and then second, much more deliberate about you're going into this rotation in order to learn and demonstrate, you know, X or Y. And one, one that comes to mind pretty quickly, and this is now a, a business unit, a big business unit CEO at Walmart. Um, at the time, he was um, leading a, a, a merchandising area, but he needed an international assignment, and we felt future leaders also needed exposure to urban markets. You know, Walmart grew up kind of more of a rural market strategy, big super centers, but recognizing the, the trend of the population and a higher percentage living in more urban markets. So when he went to this, in this case, China, we were pretty clear on a few things that, you know, one, you need to develop a market, marketing strategy for the urban market. Second, you, you need to really groom your successor and, and a local talent. Three, you need to build a top team, you know, because this was a whole new kind of venture. Um, so helping be more deliberate about these are the kind of experiences that you should have and the kind of outcomes. Augmented, like you said, with coaching, exposure mm -hmm. to other peers or industry executives, and then some of the more formal training that we had, you know, you could leverage the executive education programs. Um, we had a signature leadership program, you know, that, that, that folks went through that was more about strategy and, and um, you know, the business levers and, and ways that you can deliver. So, so to me, it's that, it's that more comprehensive, holistic development strategy that helps leaders then progress um, and get ready for the next. That's great. Wonderful, wonderful response. So education, exposure, and experience are the three yeah. E's and part of the formula. Coachability, you've mentioned a couple times, is being very important. How do you know coachability when you see it? Does the person have a learning mindset? Like, are they um, mm -hmm. curious? You know, do they want to learn? And that's, that goes back, Mike, to your earlier question about, like, this mindset. A leader today needs to give themselves permission to be a learner. And if you think that, you know, I'm the leader and I know the answers and if I don't, I'm anxious, right? It's not a good mindset. So this whole notion of coachability, it's almost, I would translate that to learn a bit. Like I want to learn. And if I could be coached and learn because I give myself permission to not know the answer, um, that's important. Great. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you. I'm going to remind everybody very briefly here, uh, this is Leadership in Action, and we're in conversation with Mike Barrier, uh, a partner at McKinsey and Company, uh, focused on organizational practice and talent management. And Mike, just to keep us going now and, and get a little bit more personal as we begin to near the end of our time with you, uh, let's take Walmart uh, as, as uh, one of your stopping places uh, in your earlier career. You were the chief talent officer, and I said this at the outset, for the world's largest private employer. That's a huge job. And now you're working with people who are doing that, but you're not doing that yourself. So going back to your formula, experience, exposure, and education, as you became a partner at McKinsey, uh, one of the world's great consulting firms, as we all know, how did you have to learn that new calling, so to speak? 
Yeah, great question, Mike. Uh, something I um, grapple with every day because it's always, you know, the grass could be green around the other side, right? Yeah. Um, let me explain that. When I decided um, I was going to move on from Walmart, uh, it was because I started to get exposure to what McKinsey was doing in, in the, their own practice, if you will, and particularly around the HR profession. Um, and what really drew me into that was because here, here was a, a group of, you know, really bright folks, really committed to, you know, having an impact on how HR really much better aligns to business and drives outcome and managed talent. So all the things that I was passing my whole career. And I felt that in my role as a chief talent or as a CHRO, I could impact the company. But in a role like McKinsey, I could have a broader impact on the HR profession. And that was, that was a draw for me. Um, and then I felt what was missing in my earlier career, particularly as a CHRO, was this whole platform to really truly link talent to business outcomes and have the, the language and, and the toolkit. I always admired finance because they had so much rigor around the allocation of financial capital and measures like ROI. And I felt HR needs that. So in a way, I, you know, I just was really drawn to what, what McKinsey was trying to do. Um, the transition though, you know, so, so on the good side, really positive side, there's so much variety in terms of the companies, industries, clients that I get to serve you know, as a partner at McKinsey. Um, but sometimes I do miss that in the trenches with the team, you know, day in, day out, like, you know, trying to hammer out and, and do it. So I, my favorite clients are where there's actually a blend of that. And I have a few, you know, examples in the last four years where I, you know, I really became like a member of the client team. I was able to leverage everything McKinsey, but really got uh, like almost like the private banker relationship with a CEO on, on all things talent and all things organization. So that's kind of my favorite engagement when I could get really deep with a client and then bring the best of McKinsey, you know, to help them solve for these, you know, significant human capital challenges. Mike, I got a quick follow-up and then over to Ann. This is kind of like inside baseball. So now yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> loving it. <laughs> How do you as a consultant, what are some of the tangible steps you take to learn quickly about a client that you may not have worked with before? What's the secret of your success in that? That is inside baseball, but you know, McKinsey has an amazing strategy practice, and you could quickly get a lot of intelligence about companies, you know, where they fit in their industry, where are they on kind of a performance curve, all the history. So, which is super helpful the work I do because what are the kind of value drivers that matter for this company in this industry at this moment in time? So that's where you know. The front end of this talent to value work is just having a really clear understanding of the strategic value drives, if you will. So I do, I spend time up front even before meeting with the client. And you know, McKinsey has a tremendous um, knowledge management system um, that, that helps you do that. Great. Anne, over to you. Oh, thank you. All right, Mike Barrier, follow up on that. When, when you are thinking about those best uh, advising occasions, how do you conceive of your role as an advisor? Are you primarily a sounding board allowing the executive team to reflect, talk out loud, problem solve, or are you a more active problem solver with the executive team? Yeah, great question, Ed, and it's a blend. 
that sometimes I consider myself an executive coach. And as an executive coach, I should do the latter of what you were describing, you know, help the client reflect and, and come to their answer. And, you know, maybe be a little bit um, provocative, but, you know, help them think more forward, if you will. But, but the thread of my expertise is talent advisory. So I like to describe myself as an executive coach talent advisor. So okay. if, it comes, if, it, if it comes to leadership and I have my coaching hat on, I'm trying to help that person get to more awareness and insights mm -hmm. and how can they be a, a stronger leader, you know, more mm -hmm. impact, kind of do those kind of mindset shifts we talked about. But when it comes to the talent part, that's where I'm more advising, almost at the table, you know, pushing up against some of the things you mentioned earlier. And mm -hmm. why are you making, you know, this assessment of a person? What's your fact base? You know, is it, mm -hmm. are there any kind of, unconscious biases going into mm -hmm. that kind of conversation. Um, how do you bring much more rigor? Like I'm a big fan for companies to, to build a fact base about their talent. And, and that you know, requires assessment and understanding yeah. more, not just the, the jobs they went through, but what did they do in those jobs? So, mm -hmm. so that's how I advise clients to really get to know the talent they have. Um, but on the other side, really understand what is success in the roles, particularly those that matter. Mm -hmm. Now, when you found yourself in a situation in, and I'm imagining this is the case, but tell me if I'm wrong, that maybe you are working with an executive and his or her team, and it's just not clicking somehow. What is, what is usually, is there a pattern? If it's not working, do you find that there's a certain pattern that is typical? Yeah, two things come to mind. One, I often find there's not real alignment on value drivers aspiration you know the way to get there um and when you don't have the alignment you end up getting more either passive aggressive behavior so everybody kind of agrees but they really don't right, or right. you get much more silo kind of turf protection um because they don't see the value of corporate or the enterprise so so when we do top effect, top team effectiveness, that those are some of the things we address up front. How do you align on the vision and the value drivers and then see yourself as a team and focus on the work only that you can do as a team, not this place where individual leaders come in and you know report in on, on what's happening in their business. And I like to we, we like to describe this as the transition or the shift from a team of leaders to a true leadership team. And it's the Love true it. leadership team that has that, you know, alignment on vision and purpose and they're, they're kind of connected to how do we as the team accomplish the goals that unite us, you know, as a team. Um, and then you cascade that down, you know, deep in the organization. So that, that's, that's the intention. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> so, Mike, we're nearly out of time here. And this is probably going to be our last question. Uh, very contemporarily. Everybody that you work with these days is concerned about diversity, inclusion, Black Lives Matter, the coronavirus, and well beyond. What a year we're in. And just to give it a sharp edge, what's the number one question you're getting from some of your clients on working with all the above? Yeah, it's hard to think one question. Um, you know, coming out of the the crisis, there's a lot of questions around, you know, how, how do we think about the workforce? How do we ramp back up? Um, how do we even think about the, you know, the design of jobs, if you will? And 
I think there's much more acceptance of this whole virtual working world that we've all had to adapt to in a pretty quick compressed period of time. Um, so, so there's a lot, a lot there. You know, what does it mean for work and where people work um, on the on the DNI spot? And I say DNI because I like to split them out. So on the diversity side, I, and more recently, I've had these kind of conversations. Diversity representation is is now table stakes. If you're not driving representation at most senior levels, you are way behind. Yeah. So this whole notion of what is our strategy to increase representation and give diverse talent, particularly you know deeper in the pipeline, those opportunities that are really going to matter and, and help them progress is so important. So so that's a big area that you know we're getting a lot of questions. And then on the inclusion side, which kind of maps into culture, but how do we create these inclusive cultures where everybody is comfortable to bring their full self and this whole notion of, of working in a way that leaders actually maximize the diversity representation through inclusion. And there, you know, I, I see a lot of interest in what we might call, and, and McKinsey's been doing work in this area, mass personalization of change. You know, how do we bring it down to the level of the individual and what they can do? And, you know, you hear all the, the things around nudges and, you know, much more tailored work that help individuals connect to the company's purpose and give them tips in terms of, you know, nudges and tips about what they could be doing differently to, to think more broadly, to be more inclusive, to, you know, become more aware of their own unconscious bias. Mike, that's really helpful. And I'm going to try something a little bit different from what we normally do. At this uh, point, we customarily do our own after action review. Ann and I will try to sum up the points that have really stuck with us in a way hopefully that listeners can build their own conclusions, but uh, with the uh, assistance of our own thinking on this. Here's the modification. Mike, I'm going to begin with you and then Anne and then over to me. For the most important point we'd like people to really remember from this dialogue, which by the way has been great. So Mike, getting our after action review going, what would you most like people to hang on to from what we've talked through just now? All right, so um, talent matters more than ever. It, you have to think about managing talent like you would think about managing financial capital allocation. In order to do it well, roles before talent. So think about the roles, what's important, what is success, to get a better sense of how well is your talent fitting to those roles and success requirements. That's where talent strategy should come to life, not before that. So the talent strategy is how do I close the gaps through development, through external recruitment, through the culture, inclusivity, and all those other ways of working that are gonna be important in order to help my talent in the right roles perform in the best way. Um, so that's kind of my, I guess, overarching summary. Great, great point. Anne, over to you. Okay, all right, I'm gonna take the point of view of a staff member looking to develop, and I'm gonna remember the three E's, experience, exposure, and education. And I'm gonna be on the lookout for bolstering my experience as best I can, making sure I take advantage of stretch opportunities that are put in front of me or find them if they're not put in front of me. And finally, take advantage of education. And Mike, I'm gonna take a page out of your book and recognize that education can happen in the classroom, but also outside the classroom <laughs> with some self-study. So I'm gonna walk away with the three E's. <laughs> 
Anne, I've got the same summary point. Just looking at my own notes here, the, the three E's, experience, exposure, and education. And Mike, I really like the emphasis you put on experience. I think you said it was something like 70% of what's going to really make a difference. So giving people stretch experiences is part of that uh, for sure. Uh, but don't forget exposure. Talking with senior bankers, for example, or senior uh, retailers at, uh, Mark, at uh, Walmart, really important. We learn from others who've already done it before us. And then education uh, comes in many forms, some classrooms, some private programs, some offsites. And by the way, just reading great biographies of people who've done it in ways that uh, may be important for you to think about it for yourself. Number two, and I think it's a, a kind of almost a, a caption from our, for our entire 55 minutes here together. We want to go from uh, a team of leaders to a true leadership team. I think we tend to forget that. We want great individual performers, but we've got to meld them together. And of course, that's how it worked at Walmart, I'm sure for you. Uh, you've got a chief executive, you've got a chief financial officer, a chief marketing officer, and certainly a chief human resource officer. But that team is only as good as your independent talents come to, to form a true team. So uh, that's uh, pretty much it from us. Michael Barrier, thank you for joining us. We've loved the conversation with you. I want to remind everybody, if you got a question about today's show, you know where to find us. We're at Business Radio by email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find us on Twitter at SXMBusiness. Want to thank our guest, Mike Barrier, uh, a partner at McKinsey & Company. Want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 